0: God, we we give you praise for your word, for it is truth. And God, you are setting apart your people, you're sanctifying your church through your word, because it's true. God, I, I pray that our hearts would resonate today with the truth of God's word, that we would behold Christ in the hearing and the consideration of your word, and God, that we would depart even more ready and eager uh, to say, as we just sang, All hail the King, King of kings and Lord of lords, ruling and reigning in righteousness, ready to proclaim the gospel with our lives and from our lips with, with anyone who would be willing to observe us or to hear us. God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 12 through 22. Uh, you can hang out in 12, and for those of you who have been with us through this series the last couple of weeks, you're like, man, you hit Genesis 3, you hit Genesis 4, and now you're going to 12, which is where we learn about Abraham and eventually about Isaac, and, and you just skipped Noah. Yes, I did. But I don't want to disappoint those who are looking forward to Noah because Noah shows us Jesus. So here we go, all right? A little introduction before we get to Abraham and Isaac. Despite humanity's great wickedness, God makes a way to preserve humanity and bring them safely into a renewed planet, a planet that's been rid of violence and sin and those sorts of things. How? How does he do that? Through Noah, who chapter 6, verse 8, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In other words, God's undeserved grace came into Noah's life and led him to live righteously before the Lord, chapter 6, verse 9. And God has him build what? An ark. We often think of the story of the flood as a story of great judgment, and it is, but it is also a story, is it not, of great salvation. Everyone on the planet deserved death and destruction. God would have been right to just do away with all of it, but instead the, the Lord makes a way to start over and save people and animals to live in His renewed world in the process. Noah, in the text of scripture at the time, is the only righteous son around, and all who enter his boat are delivered from certain judgment and into God's renewed creation. Can you think of someone who's a lot like Noah, but just better? His name is Jesus. Jesus is the greater Noah. He's not righteous because of God's grace. He's God in our place. He didn't need God's grace. He came to bring us God's Grace. He's righteous not because God was gracious to him, but because he's God. And all who are in his boat have their sins forgiven and a sure hope of being saved from God's wrath to come, ushered into God's renewed heavens and earth forevermore. So for those of you who wanted Noah, there you go. <laughs> but Noah isn't the son, is he? No sooner had they gotten off the boat, no sooner had humanity had a fresh start on the opportunity to fill the world with worshipers, and Noah plants a vineyard. Here we go again. Somebody falling in a garden. He plants a vineyard, and what does he do? He gets drunk, and we read of the second fall that happens in the text, and things unravel rather quickly. By chapter 11, people like Cain previously, they travel eastward, which is the direction of the disobedient in Scripture. They, they travel eastward, and this time they get as far as Babel, and they make their own city, and they want to make a tower to heaven and make a name for themselves. No one seems interested in the Lord, whose name is above every other name. So what happens? The Lord comes down, and He confuses their language and scatters them over the face of the whole world. And once more, the world is in disarray. But at the time that the peoples of the world are divided by language and location, we read in chapter 10, 25, that one of Noah's sons named Shem, his line also divides. And it divides in this way. There are two sons, and one of those sons ultimately gives us the genealogy that leads to the birth of Abram. And then in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now remember, we've just had chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, the destruction. There's no hope, it seems, for humanity. But somehow there's going to be this blessing that rests on Shem. And Shem's sons don't seem like they're offering much hope. But then there's division of the world and there's division of Shem's line. And then we get the line that leads to Abraham. And we read this in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless though, and bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the Lord promises this son, Abram will dwell in a land given by God so that he will be the fountainhead of a great nation, implying that there's going to be a lot of people united in a common way and understanding of life, and, and this Abram will be blessed by God, and he will have a great name, and, and somehow, even though it's going to be a great name and a great nation, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through the blessing that comes through Abraham, and yet, those who dishonor Abram will be cursed by God. We don't fully comprehend what God is saying here at this point in the text, but we are. it is clear that something massively important is happening, right? That, that somehow Abraham is going to be the dividing line of humanity and history. God chooses Abram out of a world seeking to make a name for itself and Says, you're the guy. You're the guy through whom my blessing will come. Those who seek the blessing that comes through you will be blessed. Those who refuse it, those who curse you, will be cursed. Eventually, Abram's line, excuse me, his land, will cover the entire planet because all the families on the planet will have been blessed through Abram. But at this point, it's a little bit confusing one wonders how it is that Abram can have a nation when he doesn't even have a son. How can he be the fountainhead of a great nation and have a great name and it's just Abram? Yet with little fanfare, we read in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, that as Abraham arrives in Canaan, the Lord appeared to him and said to your offspring or to your seed, Or to your son, I will give this land. And what we find in the next chapters is is that this promise of a seed or a son of Abraham continues to be restated again and again and again. In chapter 13, when Abram's nephew Lot had the opportunity to choose Canaan for himself, which was the land promised to Abram, he instead went towards Sodom. And again, the promises of the Lord prevailed and and he says the lord says to abram all the land that you see i will give to you and your seed forever i will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth your offspring can also be counted that was in chapter 13 paul in galatians chapter 3 verse 16 helps us understand the promise of abraham's offspring or his seed when he says this now listen closely Galatians 3:16 Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring it does not say offsprings referring to many but referring to one and to your offspring who is who is this offspring who is this seed who is this descendant it is Christ to be sure Abraham would have many descendants but the blessings that would come to humanity, would belong to and come through a particular son of Abraham. In chapter 14, things are going well for Abraham. When Lot is captured, Abraham marshals a militia to rescue him, and his wealth has grown, his military might has grown. But then when chapter 15 comes, it's interesting. In chapter 14, Abraham, thing, it seems like things are going great. He's got a militia. Do you remember that? Like, Abraham defeats five kings with 300 and some people. He's got a bunch of wealth. Everything's great. We get to chapter 15, and if you turn with me there, you will see this text on the screen. This this is what we read at the beginning of chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. So after things are going well for Abram, everything seems good, and this is what we read. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. In other words, just just a servant in the household. We'll We'll just designate somebody to be that seed. And behold... The word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it unto him as righteousness. What did he believe in particular about the Lord? He believed that the Lord would give the son that he promised to give through whom the blessing would come. And what's interesting is Paul picks this up in Romans chapter 4 and says that Abraham is the father of faith. He's the father of many nations, not just of one nation, because he shows us what it's like to believe in the Lord and the Lord's promised son. The Lord did not need Abram's help. You see what Abram's trying to do? He's trying to help God out. All right, God, we don't have a son yet. Here's Eleazar he's a pretty good guy. We'll let him be the son. And the Lord's like, I don't need your help. I'm going to give you a son. And, and, and it's true for us as well, right? God is not looking for us to help God out. He's looking for us to just rely upon him. All he wanted was Abraham's trust. Just, just trust me. And Abram trusts in God and it is credit to him as righteousness. Abram's not righteous, but he gets righteousness from God by faith in what? In a promised son who will come. But for this son to come, he has to come through a physically impossible birth. And this is, obviously, Jesus being born of a virgin is born of a physically impossible birth. And this is forecasted for us all the way back in the book of Genesis. Abraham believed God, but there's still a big problem. He believes God, but he has no son. When Sarah, his wife, was introduced back in chapter 11, verse 30, this is what we read of her. Sarah was barren. She had no child. Then we get to chapter 16, and we read of Sarah again in chapter 16, verse 1, and what do we read? Now, Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Sarah suggests that Abraham try to have a child with Hagar, and sure enough, Hagar conceives and then Sarah gets mad. Have you ever thought about Abram in that situation? Be like, uh, it's what you told me to do. But she gets upset with Abraham. I, I, I've always wondered about that. Like, Was she just trying to prove that it wasn't her problem, it was Abraham's problem, and then she found out it wasn't Abraham's problem, and she was mad? I don't know, but she gets really upset with Abraham for doing exactly what she asked him to do. So, Ishmael is born, Hagar has Ishmael. And at the end of chapter 16, Abram is is 86 years old. And then we come to chapter 17 verse 1 and we read when Abram was 99 years old. All right, so Ishmael's 13. He's been around for a while. Abraham's been thinking, well, I guess Ishmael's is the son But we get to the beginning of chapter 17, and once more, these these promises are restated to Abraham as though they still need to be believed, as though Ishmael is not the promised son. And sure enough, what do we read in chapter 17, verses 15 through 19? Chapter 17, 15 through 19. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah." shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael, here's Ishmael, he's 13, he's a good young man, he's been hanging out with us for a good long while now, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring or his seed or his son after him. Everything that God promised to Abraham, a nation, a seed, a land, a name, and being the dividing line of humanity for all of history, depends not upon Ishmael, but upon Isaac, a son for whom his birth, naturally explained, is impossible. There's no natural explanation for a 90-year-old woman giving birth. It just doesn't happen, which is why Abraham is laughing. Isaac's name, by the way, is it means laughter. There's, there's, this is a laughable situation, and Abraham laughs, right? Did, did you know that God can intervene in your laughable sort of problems? The, the things that, that seem no way that God can overcome or intervene in, that God still delights to do a laughable work. He he does it chiefly in sending His Son, but now that His Son has come and we have His Holy Spirit, He can do great things in your life. He can overcome depression. He can overcome hardship and adversity. He can do all sorts of things as we rely upon this Son of impossible birth. Sarah is barren. She's 90 years old. She's never had a child, and now she's 90. She certainly is not going to have a child. Abraham is 99 and would be 100 by the time that a son could be born. And what in the world is is Moses trying to show us in telling us this story? He's showing us that the only son who could bring about and fulfill God's promises is the son of God's choosing and the son of God's provision. He can't come from man's manipulation or man's effort. He will come through a physically impossible birth. Sillhammer says it like this. These verses bring the promise to the brink of failure. Pushing the obstacle of old age far beyond previous levels. Sarah is barren and Abraham is old. These obstacles in themselves are great enough to demonstrate that the promise, when it is actually fulfilled, comes from God alone. But Moses takes us a step further. Sarah is even past the physical age of being able to bear children. For her to have a child is not simply unlikely, it is impossible. God's promised son must be physically connected with Abraham in some way, yet his birth is a physical impossibility. In chapter 18, it's Sarah's turn to laugh. The Lord comes again and says that she is going to have a son, and she laughs and says in verse 13 of chapter 18, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? And the Lord answers Sarah, and He answers us. I love this verse in verse 14 of chapter 18. This is how the Lord answers Sarah's laughter. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The word hard there can mean wonderful, difficult, It's it's hard and it's difficult, but it's also beautiful and it's wonderful. Is there anything too great for the Lord? Is there anything too magnificent for the Lord? Is there anything too wonderful for the Lord? The Lord's Son will come in a way that defies physical explanation. And when He comes, people will understand there is nothing too hard. There's nothing too beautiful. There's nothing too wonderful for the Lord. In Genesis 21, Isaac is born and God's promises remain. His promises now must come not only through Abram, but through Isaac and the seed who will come through Isaac. But Isaac's eventual wife, do you remember what happens to Isaac's eventual wife, Rebecca? She's also barren. She also cannot have children. So Isaac, what does he do in Genesis 25? He prays for her and God opens her womb and the succession of sons that culminates with Jesus continues now through Jacob. Much later, long after Israel has divided into two kingdoms, it seems that God's promises are in jeopardy because Judah is about to fall to an alliance of Israel, the northern kingdom, and Syria. But Isaiah, do you remember in chapter 7 of Isaiah, he promises a sign of Judah's eventual success. And this is what he says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. And as we open the New Testament, what do we find in Matthew chapter 1? We find an angel explaining to Joseph in Matthew 1, that Jesus has been conceived by the Holy Spirit in an impossible way, naturally speaking, in the Virgin Mary to fulfill this very prophecy, a prophecy crystallized in Isaiah 7, but really foreshadowed all the way back in Genesis that the Son of God would be a son of impossible birth, naturally explained. And in Luke 1:37, after Mary is told that she will bear the Son of God in her womb and she knows she hasn't done anything to have a son. So she asks a very legitimate question. How can this be since I am a virgin, since I've not known a man, since there's nothing that's been done that would result in a son? God, how am I going to have a son? And in Luke 1.37, it's almost a direct quotation of Genesis chapter 18, verse 14. What does Gabriel say? Nothing will be impossible with God. Can you hear echoes of, is anything too difficult for God? the Lord. The physical impossibility of Isaac's birth foreshadows an even more impossible birth. Jesus is the greater Isaac, conceived of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. But why in the world was this necessary? Why, why couldn't Jesus just be conceived in an older woman, a woman who was past her childbearing years? The reason for the virgin birth The reason that God's Son was conceived in Mary with no contribution from a son of Adam is so that He could come into the world without the stain of Adam's sin. The only way that God the Son could redeem us is if He was untainted by the sin of Adam and of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob and of every other man who ever lived. If Jesus was conceived naturally and not supernaturally, then we are still dead in our sins. He is God the Son, supernaturally conceived in the Virgin Mary. And if you deny the virgin birth, you deny the basis of your salvation because Jesus is the spotless, unblemished, untainted Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And for that to be true, He must be conceived in the Virgin Mary with no contribution from man. He is the Son of physically impossible birth. And because He is, He can fulfill the next thing that we see in Genesis. I want to show you Genesis 22 very quickly this morning. You can turn there, Genesis 22. Are y'all having fun? I'm having fun. He came in a physically impossible way so that He might be the sacrificial lamb. What I want to show you from Genesis 22, and I'll make the point before I read the text, is this. God's promised Son will willingly go with His Father to be offered as a sacrificial lamb who is raised to life on the third day. That promise is in Genesis. You don't have to wait to get to the New Testament. That promises in Genesis. The promised son will willingly go with his father to be offered as a sacrificial lamb raised to life on the third day. In Genesis 22, Ishmael and Hagar are off the scene. They've moved on, they've, they've moved out of the family and God tests Abraham with these words at the beginning of 22. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will show you. And and a point I wanted to make this morning but didn't have time to make in full is this. Though Abraham has two sons at this point in the text, there's only one son through whom God's promises will be fulfilled. The son is Isaac, not Ishmael. God is not unaware that Abraham has two sons. What he's saying is there's only one son through whom his promises can be fulfilled, and it's Isaac. Isaac is Abraham's only son. He's the only option through whom the promises of God can be fulfilled. And he tells us, the Lord tells us this is a test. So as the readers, we know that God is not going to actually have Abraham to kill Isaac, but Abraham, as we're going to see, is willing to do whatever God asked him to do, no matter what it would cost him. Starting in verse 3 of chapter 22, would you hear with me the word of the Lord? Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Verse 4, On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. there's not time this morning to show you everything there is to see in this text, but I want to make sure we catch these three things in sequence, okay? First, Abraham doesn't flinch at the idea that Isaac would have to be sacrificed. He's like, okay, here we go. He makes all the preparations, the detail... Of This story is incredible. It's like it slows down. He takes the knife. He gets the wood. He lays it on his son. He sees the place. Every single ounce of detail. Abraham knows that at some point down the line, a son will have to be sacrificed so that the sons of men can be saved. Second, when when Isaac wonders why they don't have a lamb, Abraham believes that God will provide a sacrificial lamb and they walk to the place of sacrifice together. Finally, thirdly, Abraham believes that he and Isaac are going to come back from this time of sacrifice and worship and they're going to rejoin the party with which they had come and they're going to go home. That's all in the text. Did you see all that there? So so in the moment that Abraham raises his hand to slay Isaac, the only way we can reconcile the details that we've read is that Abraham has concluded that somehow Isaac might be God's sacrificial lamb. And we get a huge clue that this is the case in, in verse 4 because we learn that on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Do you see that in verse 4? He lifted up his eyes. In the Bible, the lifting of the eyes is almost always positive. When Isaac sees Rebekah coming to him, he's excited. He thinks she's attractive. He lifts up his eyes. It's a happy day. Here in the text, they've walked for three days, Abraham believing he's going to have to slaughter his son, but it's the third day, and he lifts up his eyes, beholding something good. For three days, Abraham's only son has been to him as good as dead, but now it is the third day, and Abraham believes God will do something good, even if he must offer Isaac his only son. You say, that's crazy talk. I don't see that in the text. Hebrews chapter 11, 19 tells us that Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac. Why? Because he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. How was Abraham able to do this? He believed God could raise the dead. But in verse 11, the angel of the Lord stops Abraham. Abraham had passed the test of his faith. He believed God that that God would keep his promise through a promised son and raise him from the dead. This, in this case, Abraham now lifts his eyes again to behold that God has sent not a lamb but a ram to be sacrificed instead of Isaac. Why a ram and not a lamb? Because the story is yet to be continued. The ultimate lamb to pay the ultimate price for sin is yet to come, and his name is Jesus. And so in ver- verse 14, Abraham, having this understanding, acts prophetically. And what does he call the name of the place in Genesis twenty-two fourteen, He calls the name of the mountain, the Lord will provide. And Moses recording this story, writing this down for the Israelites who were about to go into the promised land. What does he add? As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The true people of God have never been trusting in their biology They've never been trusting in their identity. They've always been trusting in a lamb that God would provide. Right before they go into the promised land, as, as Moses is writing this book down, and he's writing this story down, centuries after it has happened, Moses is telling the people, don't trust in the fact that Abraham is your biological father. Trust in the son who's going to come through Abraham. Trust in the lamb who's going to be provided. Trust in the lamb who will be sacrificed, and those sacrificed on the third day, he will be raised. Look for that son. He is your redemption. The people of God through the centuries are looking for a son and a lamb who would conquer even death, and at Christmas he came. Jesus is the greater Isaac. As his father, God the Father, prepared the sacrifice. They walked together up the mountain even as Jesus carried, like Isaac did, his own wood to offer himself as a substitute for sinners. Which is why John the Baptist in John 1, when he saw him, exclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He came so that the world could one day be rid of of sin and fit for us to commune with God as it was in Eden forevermore. How would Abraham have a great name? How would he become a great nation but also the father of many nations? How would he possess a land and be a blessing to every family on earth? It would not ultimately be because of Noah or because of Shem or because of Abram or Isaac or Jacob or Judah or David, but it would be because of Jesus. The eternal Son of God, God the Son, who came down to wrap himself in our humanity and be God's Lamb of impossible birth so that we might have an otherwise impossible salvation, dying in our place and rising in victory over death on the third day. Do you know this? Jesus. Jesus is the greater Noah. He safely keeps us through God's judgment and delivers us into the renewed world to come. He's the greater Isaac who emerges not from an aging womb, but a virgin's womb. So that on the third day when he came out of that tomb, he could offer you resurrection, life. Jesus is God's promised son. He's the one through whom the promises are kept. Will you be with him at his return? Would you pray with me? King Jesus, we thank you for coming as you came so that you could do all that you have done. And God, I ask today that if there's anyone in this room, anyone within the sound of my voice over in the overflow in the sanctuary, listening online, God, if if there's anyone today that that looks at Christmas and just sees it as a nice story among a lot of different religious stories, God, that you would bring to their heart the awareness, the assurance that this is the story that counts. This is the religious story that matters. It is the one that is true, that it would resonate as truth in the hearts of your church and in the hearts of sinners such that people would call upon the name of Jesus and be saved. God, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.